You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I'm joined by entrepreneur and real estate investor, Tim Bratz. We talk about his early days as a new investor, how to raise capital for a real estate deal, and how he's grown his portfolio into over 3,500 units. I hope everyone listening to the show not only finds this episode educational, but also inspiring and shows you that you can reach your real estate investing goals too. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Tim Bratz. Welcome to the show, Tim. Robert, excited to be here, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. For those listening that may not be familiar with you, tell us a bit about your background and how you got into real estate. Yeah, man. Well, high level on me is I was going through college when the market was going crazy before. You know, 03 to 07, when I was in college, I was motivated by money. And people said, if you want to make a bunch of money, get involved in real estate. And so I went and started kind of a construction company that was painting houses in the summertime. And then I worked as an intern for one of the largest home builders in the country. And uh, my brother, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, but my brother was living out in New York City at the time. And he said, hey, man, why don't you come and live with me and get a job out here? And so I thought, hey, I don't know, next time I'll be able to move to New York City and live for free. So I moved out there and um, became a real estate agent and got my real estate license, worked for a commercial little boutique brokerage in Manhattan, and um, thought that's how you got involved in real estate. You know, I think a lot of people want to get involved in real estate because of the allure and the attractiveness of residual income and passive income. And then a lot of us get stuck in this transactional kind of trap of trading our time for money and kind of on that hamster wheel, right? And I became a broker. I brokered a couple of deals. And uh, the first deal I brokered was 400 square feet. We signed a lease for $10,000 a month, 400 square feet. It was a 12-year lease term, 4% annual escalations. And I remember doing the math on that and thinking, this landlord was going to make almost 2 million bucks over the next 12 years for doing something at one point in time. And that was one small unit. He had eight other retail spaces and another like 10, 15 stories of apartments above it. So I'm like, man, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate instead of brokering it. That's where the real residual is. But again, I didn't have money. I didn't know that you can go out and raise private money. I didn't know. I thought that you had to stockpile your own cash in order to buy deals. And so I, I stayed in that transactional trap. And so I, I moved out to Charleston, South Carolina, didn't have money. I'm a punk 23-year-old kid. And uh, when I was down there, I was like, how, how can I get money? And somebody said that you can call up your credit card company, get your credit card limit increased. And that's what I ended up doing. I, I found the cheapest house on the entire MLS, called up my credit card company, told them I was going to make a big purchase, asked them to increase my limit. I asked them to increase it from 3000 to 100000 They said, absolutely not. And then... Uh, but I got them to increase it to 15000 So I made an offer again on the cheapest house in the entire MLS in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, went back and forth. And I got it for fourteen grand. Had a couple thousand dollars saved up, and I literally did all the work myself, flooring, paint, fixtures, landscaping, handed out a bunch of flyers, and I, I flipped that house. And so I flip it. I made about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 in about seven, eh, let's say 90 days, and wanted to go do it again. So you could do it again, do it again. I eventually met people who had access to money, but maybe didn't have the time or the skill set in order to go out and invest in real estate. And so they became private money lenders. They actually put up the money. I did the work and we ended up carving up deals. 
fast track to today, I own a little 3,472 units as we sit here today. Portfolio, a little over $275 million. And we don't owe that much in debt, about 160 in debt. So there's a lot of equity built up in a portfolio. We'll certainly talk more about your current level of your business and over 3,400 units you own. But let's start at the very beginning and work our way up to today. I know you mentioned that you were always about money and you knew the way to get get that money was in real estate. But what really drove you to real estate specifically in the depths of the Great Recession? Because I mean, there are a lot of different ways you can get money, right? I mean, there's various different ways that people have come about their wealth. What made you choose real estate? Well, I got excited about real estate when everything was going crazy. When everybody's making money, if you had a pulse, you could make money. I heard a stat that one in four residents of Florida had their real estate license during the last boom. And so it's crazy. Like a family of four, somebody's got their real estate license. That's how many people were buying in Florida from out of state that one in four residents could have their real estate like crazy. And so that's the kind of mayhem that was going on in the real estate market from 03 to 0. Seven before it crashed. And I remember when I was interning for this, this home builder, the VP just came in one day in a Monday morning meeting and said, Hey, somebody give me a good idea. And he had a stack of $100 bills and just started handing it out to people with good ideas and even people with bad ideas. And I'm like, Are you kidding me? That's how much money is in this business? Like, it's amazing to me. And so I got really excited about real estate. And then the market crashed. And I had just shown up to the party. I'm like, Everybody's leaving the party. I'm like, I, I just got here. What's happening? And it was actually pretty good timing because if I had gotten into real estate a couple of years before as an investor, I probably would have done something stupid. I would have taken out one of these no documented loans, give me $100 million of loans, and I would have gone bankrupt. And I actually gotten it started in investing in real estate when the market had already shifted and everybody's saying, run, 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 run. There's like, it's toxic. But I, I knew just from studying wealth and reading books on this stuff. So I was always interested in real estate. And I was always interested in wealth because everything I ever studied, everything I ever talked about or or talked to anybody about, they all said more millionaires have been made in real estate than in any other industry or really every other industry combined. And so I knew that real estate was not an experiment. I knew that it wasn't something that, you know, like like a tech startup could be something big, but it probably could fail also. I knew that if I just stuck with real estate, eventually I'd be able to build some wealth. I knew some other people who were involved in real estate. I'm like, this guy's making money. I'm going to get rich doing this. right? (laughs) And so that's what really got me intrigued on real estate and why I really stuck with it. And so when I started buying, I was buying at the bottom of the barrel and there was just deals everywhere. You could have your pick at anything you wanted on the MLS, but money was very, very hard to come by. It was really hard to find private lenders for your projects. Maybe that's just because I was new. Maybe it's because of the market. I don't really know. But I struggled with raising private money. I was able to get these a little bit here and there. You know, Again, I'm 23, 24, 25 years old at the time when I first got it started. And all my friends were at the bars blowing all their money on booze, trips, girls, and all this, all this other stuff. And so nobody really had any money saved up. So I couldn't go to my friends for money. There was a little bit of like, not really family money. Like my brother had a couple of bucks. He sold his apartment and had uh, like 60 grand. So he ended up investing in some projects with me. But I was doing small deals. I was buying houses for $15,000, $20,000 in C and D class areas of town. So I could, I could buy three, four, or five houses at a time. Built up by the time I was 25 years old, 
I didn't have a lot of property, but I had 10 houses. And one was my primary residence where I had a three bedroom. I rented two of the rooms out to my buddies. And between cash flow that came in from all my properties, after operating expenses and after debt service, I had about $3,000 a month in passive income. And so I wasn't rich, but I was technically financially free because my operating expenses, my, my personal expenses were only about two grand a month or 1500 bucks maybe after you know, it was all said and done. So again, I'm not rich, but I'm financially free. I have more passive income than what my monthly expenses were. And I was essentially retire if I wanted to. So it was really, really cool, even in the depths of the recession, 2010, that I was essentially financially free. I was self-managing. I didn't pay a management company. So that was kind of like my job, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, anything too crazy. So along comes this other business. I'm this entrepreneur. I'm chasing shiny objects. I want to get rich quick. And I follow this other business that was more of a, a network marketing type company, but it aligned really well with real estate. Like they did home security systems and TV and internet and electricity and natural gas and uh, cell phones and all these other things. And so I liked that it aligned with real estate. I thought maybe I could push this on some of my tenants. I could make some residuals on this other stuff. Really went down that path of, of the whole network marketing thing. And it was amazing from a standpoint of personal development and the relationships I built. The reality is there wasn't really any money in it unless you were out recruiting people. And after two and a half years, man, I was just dead broke. And I had $25,000 of credit card debt. I had 80 bucks cash to my name and burning up miles in my car. I was paying for, for gas with the coins out of the cup holder of my car. I uh, would go to these business conferences two hours away. And I would actually sleep in the back seat because I couldn't afford a hotel room. And then I go in early into the hotel before any of the guests got there. And because we had these events at these hotels, and I would go into like the, the common bathroom and I would shave without taking a shower or anything. And so, like, that's, that's what my life was like. I would go to Subway and buy a, a foot long sub and eat half of it for lunch and half of it for dinner. And that's what I ate. So, that's where I was in July, August of 2012. And so, at that time, I'm like, man, I got to get out of this. I got to go back to what I know and my roots. The other thing that I knew was, was real estate. And now I know more people, I have better resources, better connections. I decided to leave the network marketing company and get back into real estate. At that time, two guys who were real high up in that company reached out to me and they said, hey, man, we got into this. So that way we can get into real estate. And how about we put up the money and you do the work and let's build a real estate firm together. So they put a few hundred thousand dollars, 300 grand up initially. And I invested, flipped it, bought some high-end flips, low-end flips, single-family rentals, small duplexes, quadplexes, and eventually found an eight-unit apartment building right around Christmas, New Year's of 2012. And that was the first apartment building commercial property I've ever bought. And kind of the, the initial opening me up to commercial real estate. What did the very early days of your portfolio look like? I know you mentioned that you did that first flip on your credit card. Where did you go from there? How did you go from just one unit, flipping one unit to now 3,400? What were the strategies that you were implementing? How long did you flip properties? I got into like wholesaling you know, and I started wholesaling properties. And that really taught me how to go out and find really good deals. I didn't have a lot of money to go and buy property. So I naturally fell into wholesaling. So that way I could just kind of generate a little bit more of my own cash and put food on the table. Flipping was, was okay. I could do maybe one of those at a time. But the reality is it took 90 to 120 days to flip a property and I had zero income. And so it wasn't sold. And then I got this big windfall of cash and I just didn't like that. So I liked wholesaling because it kept me going. And, and it really taught me how to go out and find really, really good deals and negotiate good deals, underwrite good deals and understand what the renovation budget would look like and help force me to build a buyer's list and meet people with money. And so that helped a lot. So 
My first was, was a flip. My second one was a quick flip. I, I sold it in a week, maybe a week and a half. I made about $1,200, $1,300 on that one. I didn't even do anything to it. I just was able to kind of double close on it. And then I found a buddy who had a job and could get qualified for a loan. And so my third house that I ever bought was the first one I ever lost money on. And so I bought this house because it was listed for whatever it was, $100,000. We went in and got it for, I think, 60. We put another about 30, 35 grand into it. So we're all in for about $90,000, $95,000. And I'm thinking the house next door is listed for 160 grand. So I'm like, oh, we could totally sell this thing. One of my early lessons that I learned was you cannot run comps based on what other things are listed for. It doesn't mean that's what it's worth. And so on that property, we could not sell it. It sat on the market. And so we decided to just rent it. And I actually rented that house out, man, probably three and a half, four years at least. No, probably longer than that. No, we had, yeah, we had probably like five or six years because we couldn't sell it. We had to wait for the market to come back. And eventually I just wrote a check to get rid of it because it was just a, a headache property. So learned a lesson on that property. That guy never did another deal with me, by the way. And he like swore off real estate altogether. I met a guy with a line of credit with $100,000 on it. And he said, Hey man, I got this $100,000. I can family money. I don't have to pay any interest on it. I can borrow it for one year. And do you have any property that we can invest in? But I got to have the money back in a year. And so I found this portfolio of houses. Of um, uh, There were five houses on the same street, same previous owner, got foreclosed on, gave them all back to the bank. Little houses, like 700 square feet to maybe 1,000 square feet, two bed, three bed, sitting on slabs. And I decided, hey, let me just make an offer on all these things. So I made an offer on all of them. I got the houses for, depending on the house, it was between like fifteen dollars to $21,000 per house. And I probably put another seven dollars to $10,000 in each house. So I think I was all into them for around $120,000. And I was able to renovate them, rent them, and turn around and refinance them all within a year. And so I was able to get them all refinanced, pay this guy back, and I cashed them out in full. The deal was, hey, man, I'm just going to refinance and hang on to these things because it's going to be easier to do that than to sell them. And so I, I paid him his... I think he brought 100. I, I was able to raise 20 grand of private money elsewhere. And so I paid him back his 100,000. And then I gave him, I think, another like 15 or $20,000 on top of it is what he made. And then he was cashed out in full. And then I owned this, this property essentially with another couple thousand dollars of, of private money on it. And so that portfolio is what really kind of gave me five properties and started boosting my residual income. And so between that and then my primary house, and then this, this other property that was just kind of breaking even, and then I, then I found another house. It was a two single family houses on a single parcel, and the seller needed to sell really bad. He wanted to sell it for $50,000, and I got him to carry back a note, $32,000. So I only had to bring eighteen grand to the table. I went and borrowed $25,000 of private money from somebody I just got introduced to. This was like the first deal that triggered me to do business the way that I kind of... These two transactions. This, this one right here, the two on the single parcel, and then the five where I just bought it, renovated it, rented it, refinanced, cashed out my investors, and then held onto it for long-term cash flow. That is my entire business model today. So kind of like just set me up for this. The other deal was um, the two houses on the single parcel. I went and borrowed 25 grand, but I only needed 18. Well, guess what? I showed up at closing, even with rent prorations and taxes and everything. I ended up buying the house with private money and seller financing. And I walked away from closing with a $5,000 check from financing proceeds. With a cash flowing property that was rented for $1,100 a month, my total expenses were around $700, $800. So I had cash flow, positive cash flow of $300, $350 a month, let's say. And I had $5,000 in my pocket. And that whole idea and that whole strategy like resonated 
this is an amazing strategy. I don't have to go out and flip property. I can actually raise private money for rental properties, have it cash flowing, and walk away with a check. And so that whole idea really got me excited about the idea of holding rental property and building up that type of portfolio. So if you had to go back and start over, would you still follow all the same steps that you did? Got me to where I am. So I have zero regrets. Even the mistakes, even the mess ups, even all the contractors that burned me, the tenants that burned me, business partners that burned me, just all of it, man. It may be who I am today. So now I have zero regrets. I would absolutely do everything the same. Other than just the sheer volume and size of the properties that you're doing today, how has commercial properties and apartment buildings been different than your smaller investments? At the end of the day, man, the strategies are all the same. You're just adding a couple of zeros on there. And it's actually easier to do big deals than to just do small deals. Commercial mortgage brokers, they get paid a bigger commission. So they're more incentivized to make sure that the deal happens and to get a loan for you and get you qualified and all these different things. So now they're in your corner. Commercial just real estate agents, they have a big commission in play and they want to help make a deal happen. And so they're willing to let either forego commissions or help. Like everybody's on the same team trying to, trying to get the deal done. So it's actually easier to do bigger deals than the smaller deals. Bigger deals, the banks look 90% based on the property and only 10% based on the borrower. Small deals, they're looking 90% based on the borrower, 10% based on the property. So it's just different. I like the scalability of doing bigger deals, you know, like a hundred unit deal or a hundred single family houses. And you know, you go and negotiate with one seller versus a hundred sellers. You go and get financing for one deal versus a hundred deals. You go and look at one roof versus a hundred roofs. You look at one foundation versus a hundred foundations. You send your contractor to one location versus a hundred locations. Send your property manager to collect rent at one location versus a hundred. So there's a lot of scalability to it as well. That between that, between the financing being easier. And one of the things I really noticed is that when you get into bigger deals, it's a, a more sophisticated crowd that you're working with. And here's what I mean by that. Not that they're smarter or better or anything like that. It's just they've been around a little bit longer. And so just like I personally went through this transition of going from a broker to a wholesaler, to a flipper, to a turnkey single-family rental provider, to a property manager, to buying single-family rentals, to buying duplexes and quadplexes, to buying small multi, to buying bigger apartment buildings. That was a gradual process and graduation that I went through in order to scale up my operation. And what I've noticed is that a lot of contractors do the same thing. They might start out as being a handyman, then they get into full house renovations, and they build single-family houses. They start building small communities, and they start building multifamily and commercial real estate, and they start doing road projects. There's a gradual progression that they go through in order to grow their business as well. And same thing with real estate agents, same thing with financiers and, and mortgage brokers and even private money lenders. You know, they're tired of doing the transactional stuff and they want to get into more of a long-term wealth building strategy. And so all these different people from all these different facets of real estate end up graduating into commercial real estate. So when you're doing commercial real estate, you're just around a more sophisticated crowd and you're surrounded by a bunch of A players for the most part. And so if you build out a good team, it's really easy to really scale and grow your business because you're surrounded by a bunch of A players. And there's a lot of juice in the squeeze. You know, it's hard to bring a bunch of A players into a single family house that you're flipping and making twenty or thirty thousand dollars on it. There's five hands in the cookie jar. Not every, not everybody's excited about that. When you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity or even millions of dollars of equity in any given deal, there's plenty of juice in the squeeze for everybody to get paid. I'm in, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina at my beach house right now. My team is up in Cleveland, Ohio. And 
They essentially closed on a 105-unit apartment building yesterday, and I wasn't around for it. I had to sign closing docs earlier or a little bit last week and signed a couple more documents on Monday, but it was pretty easy. They were the ones handling the, the money transaction, private money investors and lenders and lining up the bank loans and all the paperwork and all the legal and all that kind of stuff. They handled all that. And they're all A players and everybody is accountable. Everybody's competent. Everybody's gets their job done. And it's easier to do deals when you're surrounding yourself with people like that. As we talk about commercial real estate throughout this episode, there's varying definitions of what commercial real estate is or what it's defined as. I know some people consider anything over the four units, so five units and up to be considered commercial property. That's how I look at it. But some people only consider commercial property to be properties that are leased to actual businesses. How are you defining commercial properties? So there's there's four major asset classes for commercial real estate. One is residential and residential is like housing, right? So that's apartment buildings, multifamily, maybe some mobile home parks, things of that nature, student housing deals, things like that. By I think housing and urban development set this uh, rule or law up, but that's five units and bigger. And that's commercial real estate. Another asset class is more office and medical. Another asset class is retail and hospitality. And then the, the last asset class is warehouse and like self-storage. And so those are the four major asset classes in commercial real estate. And everything else can funnel into one of those four. But as far as residential real estate is concerned, although it's housing, it's still commercial real estate if it's five units or bigger. Okay. So I just want to make sure that's exactly how I, I define it as well. I just want to make sure we have that context for the listeners so that they're able to picture what we're talking about as well. Now, you've talked a lot about raising private capital. And I want to dive into that a little bit because hands down, the most common question I get from new investors is, I've done a few deals. I've done one, two, three, four deals, maybe five even. Now I'm out of my own capital. How can I go raise money? How can I get my initial money to start scaling my properties? How were you able to find all of this private capital when you were just getting started? So I didn't find a lot of private capital. I found some private capital, but it's everywhere. Everybody has a 401k, an IRA. They have some cash, very unassuming, unsuspecting that some people have access to money. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are real estate investors and they're not telling people that they're real estate investors. They're trying to be some sort of super secret agent and uh, real estate investor where nobody knows what they're buying real estate. And at the end of the day, you can't do that. If, if you're not telling people that you're buying real estate, why would anybody send you deals? If you're not telling people that you're buying real estate, why would anybody offer to invest in projects with you? If you're not telling people that you're doing real estate, how are you going to build up your operations team and do all these different things? So I just got very vocal about telling people that I'm investing in real estate. And even if you've done one deal, now you have a case study on a deal that you did and how much you made on it. Now you can go and show that to somebody of, here's what I did. And even if you don't, never done a deal, but you got a work ethic, go out and find deals. Deals are far more valuable right now than money is. Money's easy to come by. I just read it's $2.1 trillion sitting on the sidelines, waiting to get into alternative assets and fixed assets like real estate right now. That is happening right now. So there's plenty of money out there. The question is, are there any good deals? Right. So you got to go out and find good deals. And you could just Google search how to find wholesale priced commercial real estate, how to find wholesale priced apartment buildings, how to find wholesale priced real estate, and look up all the different strategies, select one or two of them, go out and find good deals. And I promise you, if you're vocal about the deals that you come across on social media, you will get it funded. Somebody like me will come in and either buy it from you or partner with you on that project. So 
Right now, money is easy to come by. Institutional money and private money. So hedge funds and real estate trusts and family offices and all these banks and institutional lenders, they're begging to give money out. And then you know, there's definitely people, people that you know, people in your circle, people that know you, trust you, love you, respect you, who would invest with you if they knew that you were investing in real estate. I will say this. I gave up 67% of the first 250 deals that I did. Gave up a big chunk of the first big chunk of deals that I did, right? But I knew that I needed to build up a reputation. I knew that I needed a track record. I I knew that I needed a resume to go out and raise cheaper money. So I gave up a ton of equity in all my initial deals that I did, but it built up such a reputation that now I can go out and raise money that's much less expensive. And so there's a lot of people out there that they want to keep 100% of the deal. And they, they have, it's such a scarcity mindset. And the reality is if you go out and you raise money from somebody and you help make that money, they will invest more money with you. Not only that, but they'll even tell their friends about you. They can tell their business colleagues about you. They can tell their family about you. You'll be able to raise more money. And on deal two, on deal five, on deal 15, you'll be able to get more equity in those projects because you're able to raise a little bit less expensive money because you have more access to capital. So people get so focused on this deal right here and how much equity am I going to get in this? doesn't matter. What about the next deal and the next deal and the next deal and the next deal? And what if you build up a portfolio of 3,400 units over the course of the next few years that then cash flows you enough money where you never have to raise private money again if you didn't want to? You can just invest your own money forever because you have a problem of having too much money. That's a real problem that some people have. And so don't get too caught up on how much equity you're getting. If you're in this game, you should be in it for the long haul. Real estate's not a get rich quick. It's a get wealthy slow. And if you're in this game, you got to have a long-term mentality and you got to think, I'm going to be here for 10 years. I'm going to be here for 15 years. I'm going to be here for 20 years. And it's okay to give up a lot of equity in your first one, two years of doing deals in order to build up that resume and really have the experience to then go out and and raise more capital, uh, maybe a lesser expense ratio. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. I always recommend that to new investors as well. And I think it's Mark Cuban that talks about this on Shark Tank, where he says, having a smaller percentage of a watermelon is better than owning the entire grape. I mean, having more deals or having bigger deals or just having a smaller percentage of that is better than not doing as many deals or just doing a lot smaller deals. So yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that's such great advice. I still subscribe to that, that mentality of, I'd rather have a quarter of a watermelon than 100% of a grape. There's, there's more juice in the squeeze, right? And I give up a good chunk of my equity to other joint venture partners and operating partners now who bring deals and who are boots on the ground because that's something that I know, but I don't, it's not the highest and best use of my time. And so if somebody brings me a deal and they have the work ethic and they have the skill set in order to oversee renovations and all that, I know that I can just raise the money. I can sponsor the loan. My team can handle the asset management, like all the stuff that could be done remotely and do some coaching and mentoring and stuff throughout that process. And I'm able to now get into deals that I couldn't have gotten into before. Pretty easy for me because it's my core competency and what my unique ability is. And other people are able to get into deals that they couldn't have gotten into before. Now, all of a sudden, we'll do more together. One plus one equals three. Yeah, it's so true. I haven't been in real estate super long. I've been in it for a few years, but I've already realized that it's such a relationship game. It's just all about building those relationships. You can't be short-sighted. You need to build for the long term. And you just never know who somebody knows or what they might have in their back pocket. You just start working with them. You do the best you can, provide the best value that you can to them. And then in the long term, it'll all work out and you'll eventually be able to find more 
money from them telling their friends or them having it themselves. So in all of those apartment buildings, what exactly is it that you're looking for? When you're going through all of the deals that you're potentially considering, what exactly makes it stand out to you? Our buying criteria is 80 units or bigger. That allows us to have on-site property management and on-site maintenance staff. So there's scale once you get into about 80 to 100 units and bigger. Really, the bigger, the better though. So that's one. Number two is got to be an A or B class area, workforce housing. So I don't do anything luxury, but I want good school districts. I want safe neighborhoods, easier to manage. And although the returns might look nice on a C class or D class type property, telling you the management is a nightmare. And you have to run numbers, like people run their numbers on on D-class properties as as if they have the same occupancy rate as a B-class property. And it's just not not real. Like the real occupancy on something C-class or D-class, probably 80% on average if you're running a tight ship. And so people don't run numbers that way on C-class and D-class. And that's why they don't make the returns that they should be making, that they're projecting. So I I stick to A and B-class workforce housing, 100 units or bigger, let's say and value add. Meaning it's either physically distressed or managerially distressed. We need to be able to be all into the property for 65% of the after repair value. I took that from single family. So just like I was flipping houses, the only difference is I don't flip the apartment building. I actually just refinance it and hold it. So if a building's worth 10 million bucks stabilized, I have to be all in with purchase price, renovation costs, and holding costs for $6.5 million. That allows me to then go to a lender once it's stabilized, meaning it's over 90% occupied at market rate rents, and I can go and refinance it. So at, let's say a 70% loan. So on a $10 million valuation, they'll give me a 70% loan. That's $7 million. That allows me to pay off my short-term like acquisition construction loan and allows me to pay back all my investors. And if I'm into it for $6.5 million, they give me a $7 million loan. Guess what? There's $500,000 of non-taxable refinance proceeds that then get carved up amongst me and the, the equity partners and the, um, the operating partners, joint venture partners, everybody else who's involved in the project. So how are you finding these types of deals that meet all of your criteria? Are they coming from brokers' pocket listings? Nope. Brokers... I mean, in, in some markets, like in Georgia, yeah, we get some broker listings. What you need to understand is that brokers don't have to like put the property on the MLS 72 hours like, the, like residential brokers do. So commercial brokers, they'll get a listing and they'll just shop it around to the top 20 buyers in town. So that way they earn both sides of the commission. And so if you're one of the top 20 buyers in town, you'll get those. But there's certain markets where I am and there's certain markets where I'm not. So majority of the markets though that, that I'm investing in, I'm, I'm trying to go off market direct to the seller. Because the stuff that comes through brokers, if I'm one of the top investors in town, great, I might get a look at it. Otherwise, if you're not one of the top investors in town, you're getting the, the, the stuff that the top 20 people in town all said no to. So it's probably not a good deal. So I'm always trying to go off-market direct to seller. I don't want to compete. I don't want to get the highest and best offers and into bidding wars. I want to talk directly to the seller. I want to negotiate. I usually negotiate the best terms that way. And you find those deals the same way that you found them on the single family side. Like I was saying before, just Google search how to find wholesale real estate deals. And it's going to say drive for dollars, drive around, look for houses and buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows, dial for dollars, call for rent by owners, call for sale by owners, go in, uh, do direct mail, send postcards, network, go to real estate investors association meetings, talk about it on social media, get on podcasts, start a podcast, right? Start a meetup group or a, or a real estate investors association or, or a landlord association. I mean, th- these are all things that you can do and you can plug into, st- join all the different Facebook groups and look for deal flow on, on the, all the real estate Facebook groups, LinkedIn real estate groups. 
Instagram, like all these different things and start getting a circle of, of real estate investors. We get a lot of our deal flow just from residential wholesalers and brokers who don't know how to underwrite a commercial real estate deal. And so they come across these deals. They don't know what to do with it. They just are going to throw them away. We make sure we're top of mind. And, um, and then they send us those deals. When you're going direct to the seller, how are you approaching them? What are you saying to them? And what strategies are you using? Hey, I'm not, I'm not a broker. I'm an actual buyer. Here's my balance sheet. And I'm real. And do you have any interest in selling your building? You cannot say the wrong thing to the right person. Meaning it doesn't matter how much you stumble and mumble and trip over your words. If they're a motivated seller, they will still continue the conversation with you to sell you the building. And conversely, you cannot say the right thing to the wrong person. Meaning if somebody has no interest in selling, it doesn't matter how well-crafted you are. It doesn't matter what your resume looks like. It does, none of that stuff matters. You can't, you can't talk them into selling if they have zero interest in selling. So it's more of a sorting game than anything else. You got to sort through deals. And we sort through about 400 deals a month in order to buy two. And, um, and we, we, could buy, we could buy a lot more if we were willing to buy smaller stuff. But to find those types of deals that meet our buying criteria, we, we buy usually two buildings a month. And we're between 100 to 400 units per month. And that's based on our buying criteria. So if we were willing to get in smaller units or, or C-class kind of areas, or more tenant-friendly type states, then we could, we could do that. But we stick, we're very focused on our niche and, and we stick to that. So you just got to go through a lot of deals though. You know, you got to sort through deals faster than anybody else can sort through them. You got to be old enough to make offers immediately. And like we, we don't even look at properties until we get an accepted letter of intent. So we'll actually make our offers on properties without seeing them and just kind of project out what the renovation cost is going to be. And you can get a lot of information online these days. So you can go on a rental meter and find out what the, what the market rate rents are. You can you know, hop on Google Maps and look at Street View and see what kind of area it is. You can look at areavibes.com to figure out if it's a, a good school district and what the crime rate is and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of tools out there online that you can use to figure out if it meets your buying criteria or not, even if you're not local to the project. And then once we get a, an offer accepted, that's when we go out to the property and we do all the due diligence, and all the, the inspections and the walkthroughs. Why might a seller of a property like what you're looking for be willing to sell directly to you as a buyer rather than going to a broker? My guess is that if they're selling to you directly, they're probably not getting their highest dollar amount that they could. I'm thinking if they went through a broker, they could probably get slightly higher price just because that's going to be shopped out to so many other investors. So why might they want to sell to you rather than going directly through a broker? The highest priced buyer might not be the most qualified buyer. And I've seen it hundreds of times where somebody internationally is coming in and they're going to buy it and they're going to buy it for top dollar. Well, guess what? It's really hard to qualify for loans. Really hard to get international money into the United States if you're coming from certain countries. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving pieces. And all of a sudden, they get dragged. the seller gets dragged through the mud for six months on somebody who says they're going to close on a deal and then doesn't. I have a track record of closing on deals and not dragging sellers through the mud. And if I tell you I'm going to close in 90 days, I'm going to close in 90 days. One way or another, I'm going to close in 90 days. I'll raise 100% cash if I have to, just to make sure that I close. And when you build up that kind of a, of a track record, not everybody's motivated by getting the most money. A lot of people are motivated by getting a headache off their hand. They could be bleeding money. They might desperately need the cash. They might be going through a divorce and can't finalize it until all their assets are liquidated. Their grandmother in the hospital and need a bunch of money for medical bills, and they need it now versus six months from now, or even 90 days from now. And so they're willing to take a 
uh, lower price point in order to fix that need. Maybe they inherited the property and they're a ballet dancer in New York City and they don't want anything to do with grandpa's commercial real estate portfolio in Georgia. And they just, what's the difference to them if they make $13 million or $11 million on it? Not that big of a deal, as long as they know that they can get their money and they can go and buy their doodads. So there's a billion different reasons why people might sell for less than top dollar. There's a lot of different motivations in that. And those are the motivations that we seek. We want somebody who, I'll give you an example, bought 48 unit apartment building about a year and a half ago by a husband and wife who ran the place into the ground. They did not make any renovations to the property over 30 years. They sucked 100% of the cash flow out, lived off the cash flow. In fact, the past couple of years, it was so beat up that the, that the tenants, you know, the occupancy dropped pretty significantly. They could barely pay their, their operating expenses and their mortgage, and they let the taxes slide. So guess what? They had to sell it, and they couldn't wait for a broker to list it and hope because it was going to go to tax auction in six months. So they couldn't hope for somebody else to come in and qualify for something. They needed to sell it to somebody they knew could buy it within 90 days. And we came in, we made them an offer. They couldn't refuse. And we ended up buying that property. So those deals are out there. They're out there in every single market. They're out there in your own backyard. You just got to go find them before the brokers do or somebody else. Wholesaling small residential properties is a very common strategy in the real estate investing space, specifically for new investors. But I read on your website that you're wholesaling large apartment buildings. How and why are you doing this? Yeah. So there's, there's properties that don't meet our buying criteria. They're either in C-class areas or in areas where we don't have the resources or they're too small. They're still decent deals. They still meet our buying criteria. And there's still people out there who would buy them that are maybe just in a different place in their investment career than I am. And so even though it's not, it doesn't meet my buying criteria, it's just because I'm, I'm looking for bigger stuff. I'm looking for easier stuff. But early on, man, I bought a bunch of C-class properties. I needed to build my balance sheet. I needed to build my portfolio in order to be able to qualify for larger loans. And so there's a lot of other people who are in that space and are looking to buy those types of buildings. And so, yeah, we, we come across those deals quite a bit and we do wholesale smaller apartment buildings. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. You can wholesale it. You can actually take a fee on it. You can wholesale it and take equity. You can take wholesale and maybe do a hybrid of the two. I did a 24 unit apartment building that we wholesaled to somebody and they had, they paid us $40,000 wholesale fee on it. And then they needed help sponsoring the loan and raising some money. And they wanted us to kind of advise them and counsel them. So they actually ended up giving us 40% equity in the deal also. And we got a $40,000 wholesale fee. That's, and we're pretty passive overall in the deal other than just kind of hopping on a phone call once a week for 20 minutes and then putting our eyes on it a couple of times a month to make sure that the needle's moving forward. So pretty good deal, right? So there's, there's definitely opportunities there. The easiest stuff to wholesale is really the stuff under a million bucks. Usually that's cash buyers. Once you get over a million dollar apartment building, commercial property, then you're, you're talking about getting financing and all that kind of stuff. And you can still do it. You'll just probably want to take more of an equity piece or there's just a different way. You don't, you're not really going to sign the contract in that regard. You might have to sign some sort of consulting agreement or something like that to either take a fee or to take equity or a JV agreement or something along those lines. Talk to your attorney in whatever state you're in. They'll tell you how to legally do it. Yeah. Taking equity in wholesale deals is interesting. It's not a strategy that I hear a lot of people talk about. I do read a lot about wholesaling on different social media platforms or just on the internet in general. I don't personally do any wholesaling, but I never hear people talk about taking equity in deals. I only hear just collecting that small fee that you get in the arbitrage between the prices. But the equity component, that's an interesting interesting dynamic that I think could be interesting for wholesaling. Yeah, man. I mean, hey, you're in the transactional rat race. Don't you want to get out of that, right? Not you, but I'm talking about people in general. 
Like one of the ways to do that is, hey, if you're wholesaling, you're wholesaling some big deals, and you know you can cover your your expenses and your lifestyle with what you're doing on the single family side, and you can wholesale this one apartment building. Why not take equity in it? As long as the the buyer's cool with giving that to you, which I don't see why they wouldn't be, saves them a bunch of money. And what if do give a couple of percentage points of of equity, and now you're building long term wealth, right? Now you have somebody else operating a deal, which is amazing, and they know what they're doing. You can kind of ride their coattails, learn a little bit more about it while. While they're operating it, and while they're doing that, principal's being paid down on the loan. Property's appreciating over time. It's cash flowing while you're talking about it. Maybe you're refinancing, taking a couple bucks off the table. That's how wealth is created by buying assets and getting other people to pay for them. Yeah, and that definitely goes back to the idea that we talked about earlier of just having a small piece of a bigger pie, right? I mean, you might not be able to get a huge percentage when you do these wholesale deals, but if you do it enough times, those small percentages start to add up and. Eventually, you own 50 to 75%, maybe even 100% of an entire deal just in terms of cumulative percentages that you've acquired over the years. Definitely an interesting dynamic that I I haven't thought about when it comes to wholesaling. So I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more. If you're a ninja at finding off market deals, just go and wholesale it and take three to 5% equity in every single deal. And then all over time, guess what? You get these little annuities every month paying you from all these different deals. You did 20, 30 different deals, and some of them could be really, really big deals. Hundreds of units, thousands of units, and small percentage of that is a is a lot of monthly cash flow. And so you can really build up a lot of net worth and a lot of wealth that way by uh, by wholesaling and taking equity. One of my early mentors said, "Millionaires and billionaires are made by equity and deals." So if you can again have a long term mindset, you don't make long term decisions based on short term shortfalls. I'd always rather have the equity in the deal versus the commission, right? The big check. And so I would always maybe maybe sacrifice some things today in order to have a better tomorrow. Played out well for me. Looking back on all the different strategies you've used and all the things you've done, where would you recommend a new investor starts? I guess first I would figure out where do you want to go. You know, what is your end game? What is your the destination that you want to end up at? A lot of people go through life and it's like they don't know where they're going. And if you don't understand where you're starting from and where you're going. What your destination is, how can you create a roadmap to get anywhere? You can't. So you got to know where you want to be and have clarity in that. And if that's owning rental property, that's owning commercial real estate, then perfect. Now that you backtrack it and figure out where you are today, and then what is the first step? First step to that is buying a rental property. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a single family rental property. Go and buy a property. A lot of people are like, no, I'm going to wait for the 100 unit apartment building, or I'm just going to. I'm only looking for 200 unit buildings and bigger. Those buildings don't come across your plate, your desk, unless you're doing small deals, unless you're doing other deals, unless people know that you're doing. You're not going to get a whack at a 150-unit apartment building if you don't own anything, right? Nobody's going to take you serious when you say that you want to go on and buy that. And so you got to be able to have some small victories, have those little victories, those little wins where you're going out, you're buying properties, and it's a single family, and then you buy a duplex, and you buy a triplex, and you buy an eight-unit, and then you buy another eight-unit, and then you go buy a 14 unit. Then you go and buy 23 unit. Then you buy 30. And all of a sudden, you're up to 60, 80 units. And now that 100 unit comes across your desk. You could probably qualify for that loan yourself. Now you can step in, get a little bit more equity in that project, sponsor the loan yourself. And now you just double your portfolio. You're up to 180 units. And then all of a sudden, 150 unit comes by. And now you can qualify for that. And now you take that down. And now you double your portfolio again. And that's all that I've done. I've just continued to double my portfolio every year for the past five, six years. And so it's just, it's a compound effect, but you got, it all starts with taking action. It all starts with, with going out and buying something, doing something, go out and find a deal. 
What do you think that number one thing is that stops people from buying that deal, getting started, just taking action? I think a lot of people confuse productivity with activity. They just think, hey, let me go make business cards. Let me go and, and create this flyer, create this website, or I can't go out and do deals until I have LLC name or like none of it matters. Go out and find a deal. You know what? There's only three activities, three things that matter in real estate. One is finding deals, two is finding money, three is operations. That's it. So if you're not doing one of those three things, you're not doing real estate. So you can't do operations until you have a deal, right? You can't go out and raise money, you can't deploy it until you have a deal. And so the first thing that, that you have to do is just go out and find a deal. Get good at finding deals. You can get good at finding deals, especially in today's market. You will become very wealthy in equity and projects because there's so much money sitting on the sideline. Go out and find deals. I hate to say it, but back in my early days of college, I was one of those people that thought I was making progress and I was really just designing business cards and not really doing anything. For those listening to this episode that might have more questions about how you've grown your business or something that we've talked about throughout the show, where can they go to connect with you? I'm pretty active on social media. Come and find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm always putting out content, free content there. That's a great way to connect with me. My website's legacywealthholdings.com and social media is usually the best. Find me on Facebook and shoot me a friend request. Awesome. 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 Thanks, Tim. I'll be sure to put links to everything that we talked about throughout the show, as well as all the resources you just mentioned and how people can connect with you in the show notes so that everyone can go connect with you further. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. Robert, thanks for having me, buddy. Appreciate all the value you're putting out there. So thank you again. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.